0: This is Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley.
1: Since the emergence of the threat from Islamist-inspired terrorism, our country has made significant progress in disrupting plots and protecting the public. But it is time to say enough is enough.
0: Another terrorist attack in the United Kingdom more people killed or injured, and an intensifying political debate about how to best deal with the threat posed by violent extremism. With the UK general election just two days away, we look at how this latest incident plays into the campaign. After that, we'll hear why and how Labour could lose a seat it has held for generations.
2: I would yeah. Labour, but I don't like Jeremy Corbyn. I don't like his values. W- which do you mean? <laughs> he's proper normal. No, I don't, I don't, I don't think he's going to run this country.
0: Any and finally, I'll talk to Ian Black about a surprising story unfolding in the Arab world. But first to our London editor, Dennis Staunton. Dennis, can you give us an update on the investigation into the attack in London at the weekend? Police have just named a third of the three men who carried out the attack.
1: Yes, they've identified a third man uh, who uh, apparently is of Italian and Moroccan extraction. And he had come over to uh, to Britain from uh, Bologna. And the Italian authorities indeed had, uh, uh, according to uh, to them at least, had informed the, uh, the British authorities about him and said that he was somebody to watch. The British authorities, though, say that uh, he wasn't uh, a, a target of their interest, unlike, uh, you know, the the guy that uh, that they regard as the ringleader uh, of the uh, operation, who was uh, not only uh, a target of their investigation but had actually appeared on a on a TV programme, a documentary about uh, radical uh, Islamic extremism in London. So, uh, so, so uh, they now have identified the three uh, attackers who were shot dead by. Armed police on the Saturday night while they were going through this rampage of stabbing in Borough Market. Uh, but the uh, authorities have, once again, as it, after Manchester, they have really very serious questions to answer as to why, particularly, this one perpetrator could have got through the net given that he was such a well known radical. Now,
0: Dennis, this has been an extraordinary um, election campaign in Britain, not least because of the two terrorist attacks. Before the London attack of the weekend, we had the attack in Manchester in which 23 people were killed, many many of them children attending a pop concert. What has been the, the impact of these attacks on the campaign? I
1: think it's been unexpected uh, in that uh, what, generally speaking, I think the conventional wisdom which was uh, shared by me indeed as well was that uh, after the Manchester attack, that this would uh, play to uh, the Conservative strength to Theresa May's, particularly given that uh, she was uh, experienced in this area as a former Home Secretary, and that she was forced into a position of uh, of, of being prime ministerial rather than uh, being a politician. But in fact, it hasn't really worked out that way. So that the Manchester bombing doesn't seem to have had any political impact much at all, but the attack in London has worked uh, against uh, the Conservatives. It would seem. To me in that, uh, first of all, Theresa May on the morning of the uh, after the attack, when the, all the parties agreed they were going to suspend campaigning for the day, she went out onto the steps of Downing Street and made a really very political statement where she said enough was enough and uh, promised to, to do more to combat extremism. And uh, so this really gave the, uh, the opposition an opportunity to get political about it as well. And so they pointed out that under her watch, as Home Secretary, she had cut 20,000 police jobs. and uh, The Conservatives don't really have much of an answer for for this. What they say is that, uh, yes, but those jobs didn't really affect the counter-terrorism work because they were mostly kind of community policemen. But what uh, the opposition, and I think most people actually believe, is that actually these community policemen going uh, around on the beat, they are the eyes and ears who are capable of picking up information about Various characters who might be a little bit dodgy if there's something unusual going on, and so that this actually has blunted the counter-terrorism effort. So she's found herself, uh, and the Conservatives have found themselves, unusually on on the defensive over uh, this issue of security while Jeremy Corbyn uh, is on the attack even though uh, the Conservatives will point out that he has consistently voted against counter-terrorism legislation and of course they will also refer to his uh, friendship with uh, various members of the IRA and Sinn Féin.
0: Indeed we saw a clip on television last night Um, there were clips I suppose um, from the archives that put both leaders in an uncomfortable position but in in Corbyn's case it was one from 2011 where he was really boasting about the fact that he had opposed every piece of anti-terror legislation Never produced. It didn't look very good in the context of what's happened in Britain over the past three or four weeks.
1: Yes, I think that's right. I mean, what a lot of Labour people will say, though, is that the people who uh, are very worked up about Corbyn's uh, past in that way were never going to vote for him in the first place. Although, I do think that it is a problem with particularly older, white, male, working-class voters who uh, don't like the idea of a leader being soft on defence, and particularly they don't like the idea that he was palling around with with people in the Irish Republican movement. And so that certainly is a negative from his point of view. But the Conservatives have a number of other negatives, and one of them, of course, is not just uh, about funding for policing, But it's also about their policy towards Saudi Arabia and the fact that they've been uh, selling uh, tons of uh, weapons to Saudi Arabia, that they seldom criticize Saudi Arabia, Arabia, even though Saudi Arabia is a major funder of radical Islamist organizations throughout the world.
0: When you consider the the position of strength, Theresa May was in seven weeks ago today when she announced that she was calling for this general election and she intended to make it all about Brexit and all about her own strong and stable leadership and her ability as the only leader who could deliver a good deal for Britain leaving the EU and you see now where the campaign has ended up. How how badly wrong has it gone for her? Has it been a spectacular failure or is that overstating it?
1: Well I think it's been a calamitous campaign. She's certainly run a very bad one and made a load of mistakes along the way and as you say she started off with a lead of 24 points over Labour in some polls. And that, no matter which poll you're looking at, that that lead has certainly been halved. And some polls this week, one in particular put the Conservatives just one point ahead of Labour. Now, others say that the lead is, is actually still in double figures. But still, uh, there's no question but the, the, the race has narrowed. And that's partly because of various mistakes that Theresa May has made. The most spectacular was to do with the manifesto and this pledge in the manifesto or at least a policy in the manifesto about how old people are going to have to fund the care that they get in their own homes if they need it. And there was this uh, policy which would have meant that uh, the government could end up taking your house away after you die. And this was obviously pretty unpopular among uh, core conservative voters. So she spectacularly U-turned on it and then insisted that uh, she hadn't changed anything at all. And this was a moment which really did dramatically change people's perceptions of Theresa May from the idea that she was a strong and stable figure to uh, being a much flakier and less reliable person. and You can see that tracked in her individual poll ratings, which have really gone upside down now, so there's a number of them now suggest that she's got a higher negative rating than she has a positive rating. So a lot of it has been to do with the fact that she and the Conservatives have run a bad campaign, and also that because they ran this very presidential campaign, putting her at the centre of it, it's kind of turned out that she doesn't have much charm or much of a personality and it doesn't she doesn't really have you know she's not the right person to carry this huge burden of a presidential campaign but on the other side of it Jeremy Corbyn has actually run an unexpectedly good campaign and both on a tactical and strategic level uh, the labor campaign has just been much niftier much uh, and much more intelligent and so for example they decided that they weren't going to talk about brexit And Theresa May decided, really, despite saying that the the election was about Brexit, she wasn't really going to say anything about it either, because she didn't want to give away any details of whatever her negotiating plan is. And uh, so by moving the conversation away from Brexit, Labour was then able to make it a choice between uh, more... Conservative austerity and some very attractive plans to abolish student tuition fees and to uh, generally improve, uh, you know, people, uh, the lives of almost everybody who was, was earning less than £80,000 a year. And, of course, the overwhelming majority of people in Britain are earning less than £80,000 a year. And this was going OK until such time as Theresa May had her wobble about uh, social care. And then suddenly she could no longer say that this was an election about leadership or at least her leadership qualities were drawn into question. And so that left everything open for Labour to really make this a choice about what kind of economic policies do you want? And the Conservatives didn't have much that was very attractive to offer on that.
0: There's one significant difference, though, I think it's fair to say, between the two campaigns in that, you know, Theresa May and the Conservatives have gone after Labour seats that they think they can win. Jeremy Corbyn, on the other hand, has done a lot of his campaigning in areas where the Labour message would be well received anyway. What do you think has been sort of his thinking behind that?
1: Well, I think that's actually, uh, you've hit on something which is very important. When you look at the polls, and some of these polls uh, are very, very tight, and they actually suggest that you could end up with uh, a hung parliament. I mean, there's, there are no polls that suggest that Labour could win more seats than the Conservatives, but there are polls that suggest that, that uh, the Conservatives would lose their majority. But if you look at how Labour is campaigning, and particularly in the battleground uh, constituencies in, say, the East Midlands or the Northeast, uh, then you'll find that uh, Labour is playing a very defensive game. And Labour is expecting to lose seats, whereas the Conservatives are really trying to win seats. And so uh, the reality of the campaign on the ground doesn't reflect what you're seeing in some of these very, very narrow polls. So I think that, uh, you know, that's the way Labour is operating. On the other hand, the polls have encouraged Jeremy Corbyn and people around him to believe that actually rather in the way that he surprised everybody by... uh, winning the uh, labor leadership twice in over the last couple of years that actually there is this uh, groundswell that he appeals to places that uh, in the electorate that the that conventional politics can't reach, and what Labour and the uh, Corbynites at least are banking on is a huge turnout by young voters. And so you've seen these big rallies, uh, you know, all over uh, the the country, where he's attracting thousands of people, mostly young people. Now, as you say, a lot of these he's holding in pretty safe Labour places, and the danger for Labour is that even if they pile up uh, this uh, youth vote and that young people come out to vote for them, which they generally don't, if they do come out to vote for them, that they may be voting in the wrong places. In other words, they may be voting in places where Labour's going to win anyway, and that vote may not be... Uh, so much use in shoring up labour support in the places where they really need to defend seats or indeed to win win a few.
0: So with all that in mind, Dennis, what do you think we can expect on, on Thursday, Friday morning? What's what's the most likely outcome?
1: Well, I'm sort of conflicted, partly because uh, I've got every prediction wrong uh, since as long as I remember at this stage, in the last certainly in the last year or two. So uh, maybe this one was wrong too, probably is. So I, I, my feeling just from talking to, uh, to candidates and canvassers in both of the main parties and looking at the polls is that Theresa May will come back with a bigger majority than she left with. But that that uh, is is, is not going to be in three figures, as, uh, as some people have said. So it's not going to be a landslide. But it would be somewhere between, say, 50 and 80 votes. But that Labour could come back with more than 200 seats, so that they now have 229. In uh, the darker days for Labour, a lot of people were predicting that their uh, number of seats could go down to 150 or thereabouts. I don't think that that's going to happen because a lot of the Labour voters held up. But I don't see, at least, or I haven't on the last few days, uh, going around those battleground places. I haven't seen uh, quite that level of surge that could uh, carry Labour to victory or indeed that could snatch uh, victory from uh, Theresa May. But I do think that she come back with a majority, which is pretty adequate, but will probably be a bit disappointing for a lot of her supporters.
0: OK, a firm prediction then, Dennis. We'll hold you to that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll have you back next week. Anyway. Explain yourself. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> On Thursday, the Conservative Party will be hoping to increase its majority by winning a number of seats that have traditionally gone for Labour. One of those seats is Wakefield in Yorkshire, where Labour has won every election since 1931. I mean,
3: it's made a decision. You're both con- Conservative? Yes. Yes. Uh, this is a solid Labour
0: seat. After 86 years, why and how might Labour lose this seat? Our reporter Simon Carswell visited Wakefield to ask potential voters, such as husband and wife James and Margaret Craft.
1: It's only a 2,000 majority last election and 7,000 people voted UKIP. Well, they won't vote UKIP this time, so I think they'll go to
3: Tory. Have you folks been consistently Conservative voters? No,
2: have it it? Last, couple last of two of, elections. Yeah.
3: So what is it for you? What's wrong you about... Because back-
2: Wakefield, if you look at it from when... 30 years ago, it's so run down and it's been a Labour council and a Labour stronghold strong old for, for years. And, and something needs to change to improve Wakefield. Clearly,
0: Janet Yates and her husband Gary too are unhappy with the decline of their town under previous Labour governments. They
2: we were Labour, but they, were, they made that much hash of the country.
0: Another potential problem for Labour among its older traditional voters here is a negative attitude towards party leader Jeremy Corbyn.
3: Jeremy Corbyn is a big turn-off,
2: is he? Oh, definitely. Oh, yes. Jeremy Corbyn is certainly not Prime Minister material.
0: I've got Simon Carswell on the line. Simon, based on the interviews you shared with us, Labour has a real fight on its hands, even in constituencies it would once have considered safe seats.
3: I think so. And if you look at Yorkshire, I mean, it would be kind of ruby red in terms of Labour support over the years. This is Wakefield in particular was kind of the epicentre of the miners' strike in the 1980s. So Thatcher would not be popular here. The Conservatives would not be popular. But I spoke to uh, the Conservative challenger, Anthony Calvert, here, and he was making the point that Brexit has changed everything. He described it as this kind of massive tectonic plate shift in British politics since the referendum uh, was passed to leave the European Union. He says the party lines have been blurred by this and that there are Labour, traditional Labour voters who are unhappy with what has happened in their constituency, the fact that uh, Wakefield has gone through some tough economic times. It's certainly not fared as well as neighbouring Leeds. Uh, and a lot of people would have supported UKIP uh, in the last election. And as uh, one of the speakers said there, people I spoke to in Wakefield, there is a pool of UKIP votes, about 8,000 um, in Wakefield, that are up for grabs because there's no UKIP. UKIP candidate this time around. So the Conservatives are eyeing those and seeing an opportunity, and particularly seeing an opportunity because uh, Mary Cray. Who was considered a leadership challenger at the time um, that Jeremy Corbyn won the leadership? She was uh, she she very much backed Remain in the Brexit referendum, so that kind of put her at odds with her constituents. So Calvert sees an opportunity to wrestle this seat that's been in Labour's hands for eighty-five years now uh, back to the Conservatives.
0: So is it ultimately all about Brexit? Because there was a high um, vote for Brexit um, in that area, wasn't there?
3: There was sixty-six percent of people voted for Brexit in Wakefield. So. Brexit is an issue. People are certainly angry that Mary Cray didn't, uh, she abstained from the Article 50 vote, the, the, the trigger of Brexit in, in in the Westminster Parliament so a lot of people in Wakefield were angry that she did that because so many of them had voted to leave the European Union and they felt that that, that was kind of rebellion against her own constituents. Now she has made the point to me that she was saying well I'm all for, and um, I'm against a, a chaotic Brexit, I'm about trying to keep jobs, trying to keep investment in Wakefield uh, and uh, her challenger is saying well we need to strengthen lengthen uh, Theresa May's hand uh, in the Brexit negotiations and if we do Uh, it's going to play very well for for Britain in terms of its negotiations with Europe. And to get there, uh, Wakefield is very much one of the targets. But it's part of an overall strategy of about 58 Labour held seats uh, in constituencies where people voted for Brexit. So they're seeing these Yorkshire seats as an opportunity to uh, take back some seats from the Labour Party and to give Theresa May that stronger majority in Westminster.
0: And um, There was a mention there um, in those clips of um, the unpopularity among some voters anyway, of the Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn. What have you been hearing on the ground from um, uh, traditional Labour supporters about Corbyn? Uh, is he liked? Is he not liked? Uh,
3: the the people that I spoke to who had been Labour supporters and Labour voters in the past aren't happy with his leadership. Now, there is a generational divide. The Younger people that you speak to aren't necessarily put off by Corbyn. I think they see some, something of uh, authenticity in him, whereas the older voters just don't see him as Prime Minister material. Uh, and certainly Theresa May is is winning out uh, on those stakes. So um, it's a bit of a struggle, I think, for the Labour Party. The feeling is that the Labour grassroots support and the network that they have had for many decades in Wakefield and these constituencies in New Yorkshire will be strong enough, certainly for Mary Cray to keep her seat. But at the moment, it's, it's looking very, very tight and, and the Conservatives are putting up a very big fight for this long-held Labour seat.
0: You mentioned, Simon, that the Conservatives are targeting seats where there was a vote for Brexit and, and also where Labour had uh, narrow victories in the 2015 election. And many of those are in the north of England and in, in New Yorkshire. So a big win for the Tories this week it could really change the political map of Britain, couldn't it?
3: It certainly could. And this, as I say, is a traditional uh, Labour area. So this is what Brexit has done to uh, British politics. It's really upended things and changed party allegiances. So all of the old alliances that existed have been changed in light of this referendum to leave the European Union. So if there is a very big majority for the Conservatives, it's if Theresa May comes back with 50-plus uh, seat majority, a lot of that majority could come down to places like Yorkshire where you see that swing from to back to the Conservatives, which no one would have expected a few years ago.
0: And Simon, you were in Scotland at the weekend, then you travelled to Yorkshire from there. Um, what's your sense of the level of engagement among the general public in this election campaign? Are people engaged by it? Or are they excited by the campaign?
3: I think the people are very, very frustrated. They're fed up, particularly in Scotland, with having to go to the polls again after voting in various elections elections. elections, because five in the last four years in referendum over over that period, there's a lot of public anger and frustration that people have been asked to vote again. So as well as the polarization that's taken place in politics, you're seeing people turned off by this election. And there's a particular sense of frustration in Scotland, and it's turned it into a very strange election up in Scotland, where you have the Scottish National Party who aren't talking. They're the party of independence. They're not actually talking about independence in this election. And you have the Scottish Conservatives recognising that people in Scotland are fed up with talk of a second referendum and independence. They see an opportunity and they're the ones actually talking about independence and talking about a second referendum because they know it's not playing well on the doorsteps. So there's a lot of seats in the uh, in the border area that uh, the Scottish Tories are targeting. Uh, I visited the constituency of Moray, which is um, the, the home constituency of Angus Robertson, he's the deputy leader of the Scottish National Party and a very high profile figure uh, as leader of the Scottish National Party in Westminster. Uh, he's a very solid seat. That, that seat has been in SP hands since 1987. But the Tories, again, much like in Wakefield, they see an opportunity to snap up a, a seat because of the anger that's there and the public, the people are frustrated. Uh, and and the Tories are again looking at that place like Moray and seeing that there was a very a high vote for Brexit, although it didn't pass in Maury, there's still a lot of Brexit voters who may uh, switch to the Conservatives. So they're seen as an opportunity to potentially take a very big scalp in Angus Robertson. But again, his support base, much like Mary Cray's in Yorkshire, is very, very solid. And so I think it'll be a close, closer race than certainly than in 2015. But I think that uh, the Tories will certainly do very well to win a seat like Maury in North East Scotland and a seat like Wakefield in West Yorkshire.
0: And Simon, where's your next port of call? Where do you report from next?
3: At the moment, I'm in Sheffield, and I'm here to kind of figure out why the Liberal Democrats aren't playing very well. You've had this shift to the left and to the right and, uh, and this polarization in politics that's gone on here in Britain since the, the referendum. And you would have thought that that's left a gap in the middle for a party like the Liberal Democrats. I mean, the first-past-the-post system that exists in the UK doesn't work well for third uh, third parties. But in this climate of this polarization, you would have thought that they would have, the Liberal Democrats would have done very well. But they haven't. They haven't fared as well, mainly because they've taken a position. They were a Remain party. They're trying to tap that 48% Remain vote but it seems that a lot of people have moved on. A lot of people have moved on from Brexit and the discussion around Brexit. So Liberal Democrats is this party of the free markets trying to push that uh, with voters. It's not playing at all well. And Tim Farron, their leader, has really struggled. Um, this has been very much a Labour conservative election. So he, he's been largely invisible in this entire campaign. So I'm here in Sheffield to try and figure out why that is and why the Liberal Democrats aren't doing better than many people would have expected.
0: Okay. Simon, thanks for that. We'll leave it there. And now to the Middle East, where on Monday, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain cut diplomatic ties with Qatar, accusing it of supporting terror. It is the most serious diplomatic crisis in the Gulf Arab region in years. The measures announced include the expulsion of Qatari diplomats from the four countries concerned and a breaking off of all land, air and sea traffic with Qatar. This has prompted fears in Qatar about security of food supply and there was evidence in the capital, of Doha, yesterday of panic buying in supermarkets. Since the initial announcement on Monday, the internationally backed government in Yemen, the government in eastern Libya and the Maldives have also cut ties with Qatar. For more on this, I'm joined by Ian Black, former Guardian journalist and a visiting senior fellow at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Ian, what prompted this extraordinary move by Qatar's neighbours? Is it really a simple concern about Doha supporting terrorism, or is there more to it than that?
2: It's a fascinating crisis, this, because um, it's taken on a very extreme form on the basis of issues that have been in contention for really quite a long time. Qatar, smallest, richest country in the Gulf, has very, very different views on key key regional issues from most of its neighbours, and particularly differences with Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, the two most uh, powerful players uh, in, this, in this drama. What's interesting about it is, why has it happened now? What's triggered it? And I think the answer is quite simple. I think it's Donald Trump, Donald Trump, maybe, plus Mohammed bin Salman, who's the Saudi deputy crown prince. What do I mean by that? Trump, everybody knows, I think, that Trump is a controversial American president. Uh, he paid his first foreign visit as president a couple of weeks ago to uh, Saudi Arabia. When he went to Riyadh, Saudi capital, he did exactly the opposite of what Barack Obama had done. Barack Obama spent much of his presidency uh, trying very, very hard to secure a nuclear deal with Iran. The Saudis were really unhappy with that. So were the uh, Emiratis. So incidentally, were the uh, were the Israelis. Trump in Riyadh banged the drum of hostility to Iran. They were really pleased, they were really delighted. And I think that the Saudis and the Emirates uh, seized the opportunity emboldened by uh, Trump's position to ratchet up the pressure on this difficult neighbor of theirs. Uh, the focus is on Iran. Qatar has quite good, quite cordial relations with Iran. Qatar supports the Muslim Brotherhood and political Islamist movements. The Saudis, the Emirates, hate that. Egypt, people remember the drama of the Arab Spring, Tahrir Square, the overthrow of President Mubarak. The Saudis, the Emirates were terribly unhappy with that. The Qataris were supporting the Muslim Brotherhood. So this is a long-standing story of disagreement, of tensions. Qatar has a high profile, especially because its uh, media assets are very impressive. It has everybody has heard of Al Jazeera. A satellite channel in Arabic and English. There are others too. The Qataris are a small, very wealthy country who punch above their weight. The Saudis, the Emiratis, seized the opportunity of the Trump presidency to crack down and try and get their way. That, I think, in the big picture is what's happened.
0: And what exactly is Qatar accused of? I mean, what terror groups is it accused of supporting?
2: The the Saudis and the Emiratis don't really spell it out, but they they make references to particularly to the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood is the largest and oldest political Islamist group in the world, really. It exists in many places in the Middle East and, and beyond. Uh, and it espouses uh, political uh, change. It espouses uh, democracy. The Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, for example, took part in democratic elections. The Saudis, the Emiratis painted it. Uh, falsely, I think, uh, yeah, as a as a terrorist organisation, it's been violent in the past. But in its current uh, existence over many decades, it has been a movement that participates in uh, in the democratic political process. But this is a target of loathing for the for the Gulf kingdoms. Uh, there are questions about the groups that Qatar supports. In the Syrian crisis, the Syrian crisis now in its six years is the, is the greatest crisis in the Middle East uh, today. A country of 24, 23, 24 million people has, uh, has lost uh, maybe 500,000 dead. Half its population has been displaced. Its repercussions continue all the time. The Qataris are accused of supporting extremist groups. Uh, one of them has, has changed its name, but Jabhat al-Nusra uh, has... Uh, Affiliations did have affiliations with Al-Qaeda. The Qataris have been accused of supporting that. The uh, the Qataris have been accused of paying money uh, to free members of their own royal family who were uh, kidnapped while in uh, Iraq. They're accused of links with uh, Shia militias and the Iranians in the very complex uh, theater that is Iraq today, where the struggle is focused, of course, against the Islamic State. It's a very fast-moving, murky, complicated business, the politics of the contemporary Middle East. And the conservative states of the Gulf don't like what Qatar is doing. They don't like its relatively cordial links with Iran either. Uh, Iran and Qatar share an important gas field in the, um, in the Gulf, which is, means that there are very important economic reasons for Qatar to maintain those uh, close relations. Another issue of importance is that the Qataris have a, a friendly relationship with Hamas. That's the Palestinian Islamist movement quite close to the Muslim Brotherhood, which controls the Gaza Strip. And is it at odds with uh, the PLO? There's pressure uh, on from that direction, also from the Israelis. And there are leaks we've seen over the last few days that show links between the United Arab Emirates in particular and pro-Israeli think tanks and lobbying organizations in Washington. So this is a very, very uh, heated, murky business with smears and media campaigns. And it came to this extraordinary uh, peak yesterday with this announcement of the severing of not only diplomatic relations, but all relations uh, between the immediate neighbors and Qatar. I don't think we've ever seen anything quite like that before.
0: It is quite a tangled web there, isn't it? And you've alluded to a lot of it there. I mean, for example, you mentioned Qatar's relative friendship with Iran, but it's also on the opposite side of Iran then in, in Yemen and on the ground in Syria. So it's hard to get, a you know, it's supporting groups who who are opposed to the Assad regime, which is also friendly with Iran. So it's, it's both, in some context, seems to be friendly with Iran and others it's not. So where do you think the greatest offence here has been caused by Qatar for its neighbours? Is it the fact that Qatar is an outlier and seems to go its own way all the time, or is is, it, is, is Iran really the issue here, and is it really about Saudi-Iranian rivalry?
2: I think that the I think that the, if you're going to frame, find a way to frame the the conflicts of the contemporary Middle East, then the rivalry, strategic rivalry, I would call it between Saudi Arabia and Iran, is as good a way as any to do it. If you look at the uh, the wars and the crises that are raging across the region from from Iraq down to Yemen, then you see those two countries um, pitted against each other. Um, now, there's a lot of propaganda on both sides here. And as in any situation of tension, there is a danger that the participants will come to believe their own propaganda as well. On the Arab side, there is a demonization of Iran Sees hidden hand, it sees the Iranians are everywhere. The Iranians, of course, a larger country uh, than than any of the of the Gulf states, are actively involved in the crises of the region. They're very actively involved in uh, in Iraq. They're staunch supporters of the Syrian regime. in Lebanon, they're the sponsors of Hezbollah, the militia movement, which con- confronts Israel. Uh, the Iranians are backing to a degree, when we want to overstate it, the uh, Houthi rebels in Yemen, who the Saudis are fighting. So there's a degree of mutual demonization. The Iranians are more efficient. Uh, they have far greater capabilities than even these very, very wealthy Gulf states. But I think within that general framework, there is the Qatar-Iran connection. But I think your question hits the nail on the head. Qatar is seen as as a small uh, maverick that is disloyal to the interests of the wider region where the big guys, the Saudis in terms of population, the Emiratis in terms of their wealth, they want to call the shots. And Qatar is simply too independent for their liking. It does what it wants and it doesn't toe the line. And I think the crisis we're seeing now is simply put crudely as an attempt to force them into line and to do what the the big guys in the neighbourhood want to happen.
0: Um, Now, something you mentioned there in passing, and I just wanted to go back to it for a minute. Um, There was this intriguing story in the Financial Times um, on Monday which said that Qatar recently paid a ransom of up to a billion dollars to release members of its royal family who were kidnapped in Iraq on a hunting trip. And the suggestion is that this money ended up in the hands of a terrorist group affiliated to al-Qaeda and also um, Iranian security officials I don't know, do we know at this stage how much of anything this particular episode has to do with this development, um, uh, this diplomatic development on Monday?
2: Well, we, we, the, story, the story is known. These were members of the Qatari uh, uh, royal family, I think there were 26 of them, who were on a, on a hunting trip in southern Iraq. And they were, they, were, they, were, they were kidnapped, they were captured. And this went on for quite a long period, and according to a variety of reports, uh, a large amount of money was paid to them. Now, given the circumstances, given the people on the ground, uh, that paying of money is a ransom and the Qataris, whatever the Qataris do and don't do, what they always have is they have lots of money. They really do. They throw money at problems. So the suggestion that has been quite, quite extensively reported about paying for the release of these people does feed into this narrative of the Qataris, wealthy. Uh, always quick to do a deal uh, and ready to do a deal with the the enemies of uh, the 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 big guys in the region, the, uh, the the powerful states in the in the Gulf. It kind of fits very neatly into the perception of what they will do. They will pursue their own interests very pragmatically, without regard for, if you like, the Gulf Arab solidarity with the enormous resources at their uh, at their disposal. Now, the precise detail of which groups it went to, uh, we don't know. But it certainly appears to be part of the background. And I think some people have described this episode as the as the straw that you know broke the broke the camel's back. But the camel already groaning under the burden of irritation at these. Uh, years of, uh, of of maverick behavior. There was a precedent for this, by the way, which makes an interesting comparison. In 2014, for eight or nine months, the same Gulf states broke off diplomatic relations with uh, with Qatar to try to uh, bring pressure to bear again over its media strategy over outlets like Al Jazeera and so on. And the Qataris did make some gestures then that appeared to diffuse. The crisis so that was there was tension then it went on for a while and it was diffused and it appeared to be sort of back to business as usual and it's this escalation that has taken place now in the changed circumstances of the trump presidency and again i think also is relevant the very assertive young uh, saudi deputy crown prince Mohammed bin salman the son of king salman uh, who is seen as uh, being you know very ready to throw his weight around and the link there is between him and the uh, the um, his opposite number, the Crown Prince, in fact, and the United Arab Emirates, Mohammed bin Zayed. These are countries where the, these are you know conservative monarchies or emirates, whatever you call them, and they're dominated by powerful individuals. There's not much in the way of public participation in uh, governance. So these big players have got together. They've seen the mood that. Uh, uh, Trump was encouraging, and they've acted accordingly. I don't know whether you've seen, but it's interesting today the, uh, the tweeting American president has tweeted today about his visit uh, to Riyadh to that yes. summit a couple of weeks ago, and has said that the leaders pointed to Qatar as the as the source of extremism in the region. So, as as President Trump often does, he appears to you know, enjoy nothing more than you know having a crisis build up and then. Stir the pot as much as possible, and he's in effect he's supporting the actions of the of the Saudis and the Emiratis against Qatar on the basis of what he was told a couple of weeks ago.
0: Um. Yes, I'm glad you, you mentioned the tweet, Ian. I was going to ask you to interpret this for us. I'll actually read it just for people who might um in, in full. Um. So he, he tweeted it about an hour ago, uh, as we speak. During my recent trip to the Middle East, I stated that there can no longer be funding of radical ideology. Leaders pointed to Qatar. Dash! Look! Exclamation mark! Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to work out exactly well, what that uh, means. I, I
2: think I think that's quite good. In you know, in 140 characters, I think that sort of proves the argument about the the way in which Trump's interaction with the Gulf leaders has given them the 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 excuse, if you like, the opportunity to to uh, to escalate the crisis and try to get their own way. You see statements from the people involved from the Emirates, for example, today they're talking about the need for you know Qatar to fall into line and to take certain measures uh, the only question is whether whether the pressure will be enough to force Qatar to do this quickly or whether it'll take time it's interesting to see that the uh, Kuwaiti government which is less gung-ho by the way on this issue Kuwait at the at the at the northern end of the uh, of the Gulf has has uh, in the past has played a sort of mediating role between the Saudis and the Qataris in particular. and We've already seen the K- Kuwaitis trying to defuse this crisis. But I, it's hard to see that it will end without some sort of concessions, some sort of climb-down by the, by the Qataris, because what the what the neighbours have done, the big guys, the Saudis and the Emiratis, is really to, to ratchet things up, create a big crisis, make some demands. Uh, something is going to have to give uh, before this... Um, this new uh, this new situation can be diffused. And that does put a lot of pressure on the on the Qataris. For all their wealth, um, they're going to have problems. They're going to have problems of importing food. Ninety percent of their food comes from outside the country. And people are talking also about the 2022 World Cup, which, of course, was a great achievement for them, a jewel in the crown, if you like, a uh, matter of enormous prestige. And this is not a good background uh, for an event of that kind. So I think that the Qataris are in a bit of a corner here. Uh, the pressure will be on them. And we're already seeing attempts in the neighborhood to try to um, try to defuse it. For, for all Trump's unhelpful tweets, I don't think the Americans are going to want to abandon their very, very big airbase in Qatar, which is another paradox of Qatar, supports radical groups, has good relations with Iran, but it is also home to one of the biggest American air bases in the region. Um, So I think that the Emir and his colleagues will be feeling the heat and trying to ensure that this quite big story. Uh, fades from the headlines in the coming days.
0: Okay, and finally, Ian. I mean, it's a fascinating story, but I'm wondering how concerned should we be in the West about this crisis? I mean, does it have any implications for global security?
2: I think it, I think it, the source of concern is it goes back to it goes back to Washington. I would say that we have this president who is so uh, inconsistent and so unpredictable, and acts on the uh, what he's told by people who. Get his attention, and he doesn't think too much, and he finds himself, in a sense, being manipulated by people who have their own agendas in their own regions, and that could all add up to, to quite a lot of trouble. I mean, for example, one of the ways in which this crisis could worsen uh, would be, uh, could be played out in quite a long way away, but in the Gaza Strip, where uh, Hamas is supported by Qatar, and people live in very, very difficult conditions under siege. If the Qataris are under pressure, maybe they'll be able to provide less support and less money, and an already difficult situation, a humanitarian situation, will deteriorate. And the enemies of Hamas, whether it's the Israelis or the Palestinian mainstream leadership, the Palestinian Authority, may feel emboldened to try to act against them. So it's destabilizing. I think that's the problem. And, you know, we live in an uncertain world at the best of times. And uh, this is an example of things looking quite rocky in a part of the world where the potential for trouble uh, is always just beneath the surface.
0: Ian, thank you very much for that. That's it for this week. For more on these stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening.